Can I just check that you can hear me in the back row? Could you make a gesture? Fantastic. <laughs> now, um, you've come here, I don't really need to tell you this, but I will, to listen to Howard Davis talk about China's financial markets fit for purpose, question mark. And it's a real pleasure for me to introduce Howard. Um, it's also a real pleasure for me to introduce a lecture on China. Um, as well as being a professor at the LSE, I'm also an honorary professor at uh, Renmin Dashui, the People's University of China, where I taught for a long period uh, in 1988 and have kept in very close touch. And it's a great pleasure that uh, we have so many Chinese students at the LSE and the long tradition at the LSE of research uh, on China, which goes back um, many decades, is continuing so strongly. Now, this lecture is under the auspices of the Confucius Institute for Business. And this is an institute uh, which is supported by China's Ministry of Education. And we're very proud that the first of the Confucius Institutes for Business uh, is here at the LSE. It started in 2007, and we've already had some very distinguished students. Let me name only the first one, uh, Stephen Green, the group chairman of HSBC. So those of you thinking of applying must recognize that the standards are already uh, very high. Um, now, Howard Davis, um, I won't spend very long uh, introducing, but I would just like to say how happy us or we academics are to see the intellectual tradition of the directors of the LSE continuing. It's not an unbroken tradition, and I will not name names, but most of our directors at the LSE have been distinguished intellectuals, and Howard is very much in that tradition. It is also a subject in which he's got unique experience and qualification. Um, he has been giving here at the LSE, he started as director in 2003, and he's been giving lecture each year, an annual lecture each year, on the challenges of the financial sector and financial sector reform in, uh, in China. So that is a tradition now since 2004, and um, Howard spends a week each year uh, working with the, uh, the Chinese Banking uh, Regulatory Commission, immersing himself in the way in which the issues have changed um, over that year. So there's no one, I think, at least in outside China, who's more uh, qualified to speak on this subject than our director, Howard Davis. It's splendid uh, to be able to listen to you, Howard. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, uh, Nick. And um, I should say that Nick himself also uh, steers the Asia Research Centre in the LSE and uh, has a great influence on the way in which we address issues connected with both China and um, India. Uh, and he and I were, in fact, in China together in March of this year uh, when we hosted a big Asia forum in Beijing for all our alumni, uh, including the foreign minister who came to um, open it. Um, and we really do believe it's very important for the LSE to 
engage with China, partly because the, the issues are hugely interesting, but also, of course, because the LSE community does include a large number of Chinese. The Chinese um, are not yet the largest overseas group. The Americans are still number one. I think the moment when the there are more Chinese students in the LSE than American students will be the tipping point in global economic power. <laughs> um, we shall issue a press release uh, on that day, and the Americans at that point will recognize the game is over. Um, <laughs> but for the moment, <laughs> you're number two. Uh, there are about 650 Chinese and still about 1,000 uh, Americans, so that's one global imbalance uh, that is not working yet in China's favor. Uh, now, what I want to do um, this evening um, is... Uh, as Nick said, in a series of lectures for the last six years, what I've done is, is map the changes in the Chinese financial system and tried in each case to identify the challenges that the Chinese financial authorities address or still have to uh, address. Uh, and again, as he said, um, but I need to put up this disclaimer just to be careful that I have been a member of the International Advisory Council, the CBRC, for seven years and for five years I was also, in fact, on the uh, advisory Council of the China Securities Regulatory Commission, but nothing I say should be seen as the official view of either of those two organisations. And um, although I learn a lot uh, from them, and I have a huge admiration for what Liu Mingkang and Shang Fulin have done during this period, and I'll explain some of that as we go along, um, you know, I do, uh, and they know that I do, keep an independent view, um, and uh, I express that in these annual lectures about what I think their agenda should be. And we've been doing this for a while and they're quite comfortable with that, but I do say that disclaimer. Now, what I want to do tonight really is to focus on two topics. First of all, some of the international tensions um, that there are in relation to China in the global economy. And I think it would be uh, quite pointless really to review what's going on in the Chinese financial system without talking a little bit about what's happened to economic growth and about the big issues that you can read about in the Financial Times every day um, about the exchange rates, the imbalances and what might be done about them. Indeed, uh, even in today's Financial Times you can see that China's International, that China's reserves grew by the largest amount in any one quarter, grew by $194 billion um, to $2.65 trillion in the last quarter. Uh, and uh, also this week, on Friday, the Americans will issue their latest report on currency markets, which they have committed themselves to doing in which they address the question of whether China is a currency manipulator. Uh, so I will talk a bit about that issue. Um, and I'll also talk a bit then, uh, and that is what the substance of what I want to say, about the state of the financial system, what's going well, what is going less well, and the future reform agenda. And that actually will bring us, I hope, back to the starting point about imbalances and the Im unbalanced growth of China because I think that the state of the financial system and some key elements of that are an important explanatory factor about which we hear perhaps 
too little. The public debate tends to focus on the renminbi dollar rate uh, or it focuses on global imbalances and it doesn't focus so much on what's going on in China's financial sector which drives uh, some of these trends. And so I hope to illuminate that corner of this debate uh, tonight. Now, first of all then, what's been going on uh, in growth in China and why has that growth and the composition and shape of that growth generated the kinds of international tensions that were clearly at the top of the agenda at the World Bank IMF meetings last week. And uh, this is what's happened to growth in China. Um, as we know, the Chinese did begin to be hit by the global recession in 2008. And at the end of 2008 and early 2009, the growth rate had slipped below what is conventionally thought of as the sort of break-even growth rate, if you like. I mean, we often think, and indeed I think the Chinese authorities more or less say, that a growth rate of 8% is more or less what China needs in order to continue to generate employment and mop up the surplus labour emerging into the formal economy from the countryside. And anything below that uh, is potentially rather difficult for the Chinese authorities to manage. And so we had the huge fiscal stimulus, the 4 trillion renminbi stimulus announced at the end of 2008, and that clearly had an impact working largely through the financial system, as we shall come on to see. And we then got to the point at the beginning of this year where all the discussion was once again about overheating, once again about huge expansion in credit, about the increase in Shanghai property prices, and once again people around the world became instant experts on the price of a flat uh, in Shanghai. Uh, and now, then in the second quarter of this year, the Chinese authorities did introduce certain tightening measures which were initially done through increasing reserves uh, at the central bank by the uh, big banks, and that has edged off Chinese growth. And now, of course, the, the reverse story, because everyone is now anxious about whether the fact that the Chinese are slowing down their economy is going to produce uh, a kick into a sort of double dip, um, and that that's what the problems are in the United States. Uh, so on this, the Chinese can't win. Um, you know, if they boost the economy, uh, they get into trouble for overheating, and once they try to uh, tune it down a bit, um, then people start to worry about the implications of everybody else. So that's the background in growth. But in the United States, uh, the temperature in terms of the exchange rate and the imbalances has been rising. We've got uh, Chuck Schumer, Democratic Senator in New York, um, you know, saying we will not stand for it, this currency um, manipulation, uh, linking of this, of course, directly to US unemployment. Paul Krugman, not a political demagogue, uh, though some might say an economic demagogue at times, um, he says this is a predatory beggar-thy-neighbor policy that the Chinese are pursuing. The president, adopting more presidential, more moderate language, um, has rather talked about the structure of the Chinese economy, and this strikes me as being a better way to think about it and to talk about it, uh, and has argued that countries with external surpluses need to boost consumption and domestic demand. But he does add 
that moving to a more market-oriented exchange rate would make an essential contribution to that global rebalancing effort. And the argument in the States is really that although the Chinese did introduce an increased amount of flexibility in June of this year, in fact the renminbi has only gone up by about 2 to 2.5% and perhaps not enough to offset this political pressure. So what has been happening in the uh, Chinese economy? Um, well, Wen Jiabao says, um, don't push us on the renminbi rate. Uh, many of our exporting companies would have to close down, migrant workers would have to return to their villages. If China saw social and economic turbulence, it would be a disaster for the world. And that was just last week uh, at a conference in Brussels. So we have a pretty stark view, uh, a contrast here, uh, between opinion in the US and opinion uh, in China. So what has been actually going on? Well, it's important, first of all, to say that China's trade imbalance is really very heavily focused on the US. Uh, and if you look at the G20 excluding uh, the US, uh, China's trade has roughly moved into balance. Uh, so it's not totally straightforward that this is a purely China problem. There does look to be quite an important US dimension uh, to this. Now, of course, the G20 does include oil exporters as well these days, um, but still, it's quite striking that it's the uh, US-China trade performance that has been uh, stubbornly reluctant uh, to change. And also, um, this looks like a slightly busy and complicated slide, but I don't think it's particularly difficult to explain. This, what this attempts to do is to look at the components of growth in China and how they have changed. And what the top bit shows is the components of growth from 2002 to 2007. This is a piece of analysis from McKinsey, which I think is reasonably insightful. The private consumption uh, was 3.1%. Investment was 5% of the growth. And government consumption, 1.3. And then this is what they call domestic value-added exports. In other words, the contribution of exports to growth, taking out the uh, imports content of those investments. And as we know, since a lot of Chinese investment is in fact from multinationals, where quite a bit of the component uh, of this investment, of this export, is imported, you need to, you need to think about it in that way. And then imports not used in exports, which is actually relatively small in China, uh, inventory change, and that's your total uh, GDP growth of uh, around 12% during that period. And if you look at that and see that it's not dominant, I mean, it's only just over a quarter of growth was driven by this DVAE, but what you had in 2009 was a rather different picture. Uh, in the sense that private consumption was still quite low, investment was still quite high, government consumption had gone up, not surprising after the fiscal stimulus, um, and domestic value added exports had actually negative as a contribution to economic growth in that year, um, with imports um, actually uh, positive uh, on this occasion. So there has been a change in the composition of Chinese growth and a shift slightly away from this export-led model of growth. And I think this is one reason why the Chinese look at these numbers and say, you know, that some of the rhetoric about China, as it were, exporting their way um, out of trouble is not quite right. It's not the way it's actually been in the last year or so. 
Um, but what you have seen is still very sluggish private consumption and very rapid growth in investment. Net exports, as you can see, the bottom line, uh, have tailed off as a contribution uh, to growth. Government consumption remained more or less flat. Uh, but once again, you've seen a big rise in investment and continued stubbornness in private consumption. Even though the government have often said that it is an objective of policy in China to expand private consumption. I mean, the Chinese and Wen Jiabao has often said in response to criticism, we want to increase consumption. This is proving remarkably difficult. I think there are a number of societal factors behind that. Um, there are issues of the lack of social safety net, um, that when families move from the countryside into the town and family structures, family safety nets, if you like, are not as effective uh, in the cities as they are in the, uh, in the countryside. People then uh, need, think they will need to save because there is no social security system that's going to uh, uh, support them. So savings rates tend to go up. This is actually uh, added to by the one-child policy because you know that you won't have large numbers of children to look after. So there are some really big factors here to do with social security systems and the absence of an effective pension system for many people, uh, which causes this savings rate to be very high and causes consumption to be low. But I do also think that the financial sector plays an important part in this story, and that's the bit that I will come to later to explain why the particular features of the Chinese financial system are contributing to this very large rise in investment and to sluggish consumption. Um, and by international standards, Chinese consumption is very low. At only at just under 36% of GDP, the Americans, of course, are always champions in this particular league table. Um, they, you know, it's one they're proud to win. Um, but um, the China, it is remarkably low. I mean, it is half the US proportion of GDP, uh, Chinese uh, consumption. And if you look at uh, the whole world, then China represents, uh, in spite of its population size, um, only 5.5% of private consumption in the world as a whole. So it looks as if the problem really is a problem of a large imbalance between investment and consumption in China. And I think we'll come on to talk about one of what I think are the important factors which are contributing to that. There is one other issue that I think it's worth spending a moment on before we get into the core of what I want to say about the financial system, and that is outward foreign direct uh, investment. And this um, shows uh, the very large increase in foreign direct investment that there has been in China. I mean, this is just a massive change, 10 times the size of 2004 uh, in the first half of 2010. And at times, this has also been the source of some political tensions um, with uh, worries about China's massive investments in Africa, about the activities of sovereign wealth funds, about also, of course, the huge build-up in China's ownership of U.S. treasuries. 
Just for the moment, I think, the sovereign wealth fund dimension of this is much less controversial than it was three years ago, mainly because, of course, China's sovereign wealth fund has been rather helpful in recapitalizing some Western financial institutions which would otherwise have been in deeper trouble than they are now. Uh, so the fact that China has been prepared to mobilize some of this capital uh, to support uh, institutions uh, in the West, uh, Morgan Stanley, they own 10% of, for example, the, uh, China's sovereign wealth fund, um, that this, has been, this is a subdued issue at this point because it has been helpful to have this kind of capital. But I would not exclude the possibility that this could once again become a sensitive issue, uh, particularly in the United States. Uh, and I think that this is an area where the Chinese are going to have to tread quite carefully because the sums are absolutely huge and the potential political sensitivity in the US is really rather great. So let me now go on to the state of the financial system, what needs to change, and then, as I say, I'll circle back to this big issue of consumption and investment via an analysis of one particular feature of the financial system. Now, the first thing to say, and uh, I've said this before in these lectures, so I won't go into it at great length, is that China's financial system is very heavily dominated by the banks. And by comparison with Japan, Korea, US, and the EU, I mean, it is really rather strikingly um, dominated by the banks, with 67% of uh, financial intermediation coming through the banking system. Now, people say, well, surely the equity markets have become uh, very important recently. We read a lot more about them than we used to do. And undoubtedly, the equity markets are significant. If you look at the A shares, and uh, as I'm sure most of you know, the Chinese equity markets are divided essentially into a, uh, an onshore uh, market, the A share market in Shanghai and Shenzhen, uh, where foreign investment participation is rather restricted. You need to be a QFI, qualified foreign institutional investor, and have a quota to participate in this market. Um, and it is quite large. It's the ninth largest free float, the third largest market cap, and the daily transaction volume is the second highest globally. And of course you need to add to that the eight shares um, in Hong Kong, which are uh, easily accessible to other uh, to global investors. And these are of the Chinese uh, companies listed in Hong Kong. And there are some amusing and interesting uh, arbitrage opportunities between, well interesting is a bit of an exaggeration, but some uh, rewarding arbitrage opportunities between eight shares and eight and eight shares and some of the investment banks have desks that do little else. Uh, but if you look, therefore, at these two uh, together, um, if you look at A and H, then the Chinese equity markets are the second largest uh, in the world, um, ranked by full market capitalization, with a market cap of 3.3 trillion, as opposed to the US 10 uh, trillion, um, and this was at the end of 2009. Uh, with the UK, uh, the London Stock Exchange at the number four. But uh, most of this, or a large proportion of this market cap, is tied up. A large proportion of this is in fact still owned by the government. We'll come on to see the large-scale government ownership of financial stocks, which are quite an important part of this index. Um, and the free float is much smaller. And the free float of both the A shares and the A shares 
you know, are considerably lower and well down uh, the league. Uh, so the size of these markets does somewhat exaggerate their significance in terms of provision of capital for growth and for corporations. So banks remain the dominant source of new capital for the corporate sector. And indeed, uh, in the last two years, once again, uh, about 90% of capital raised by Chinese companies has come through the banking system. Uh, so this is really a very heavily bank-dominated system still. And it's a drama dramatic contrast between China and the US. Uh, and this has the year-on-year -year growth of total outstanding bank loans in US and China, which you know, kind of was trucking along at reasonably comparable rates uh, until 2008. And then look what's happened. Uh, US bank debt, uh, bank credit outstanding has absolutely collapsed and gone negative in the last uh, year or so, uh, whereas China's absolutely rocketed in 2009, and the growth rate has only just started to come down. And this was really largely because the stimulus went through the banking system for the most part. That, that was the way this four trillion renminbi was pumped into the economy through the banks. Now, I think, unfortunately, um, this stimulus probably is vulnerable to the iron rule that you can either spend money quickly or you can spend it well. And it's quite difficult to do both. And the Chinese certainly spend this money quickly, there's no doubt about that. Um, but how well they spent it, well, of course, we aren't quite sure what they've got. Uh, is a massive increase in uh, investment, a lot of it through local government platforms which are technically backed by local governments, um, though they're usually constructed as separate sort of special purpose vehicles uh, to invest in new export capacity uh, or indeed new uh, property construction, a lot of palaces or local governments have been built around China during this period. Um, and uh, a lot of this uh, increase in credit, you know, which has delivered increased growth, but has been pumped through the banking system and into other parts of the state or quasi-state uh, sectors. And uh, as you can see, that the increase in bank credit looked at on an annual basis uh, in 2009 was really astonishing. I mean, you, know, you had a 30% increase in total bank credit um, in one year, uh, which is, you know, it's big. Uh, and so you really do have to worry about whether that uh, was sustainable. And indeed, the Chinese do worry, and certainly the banking regulators do worry, and the People's Bank do worry, and they have uh, started to try to reduce that rate of growth, as I say, mainly initially by increasing the reserve requirements that are imposed on Chinese banks at the central bank. So they have to increase uh, their deposits with the central bank. Now, you know, has this been enough to moderate this? Because I don't think anybody believes that you could have bank credit growing for 30% a year and not then end up with inflation in asset prices and also an increase in non-performing loans subsequently. We will discover in the next couple of years 
just how good this investment was. And we will discover that uh, through monitoring non-performing loans. Now, uh, it's also this liquidity had an effect, uh, which is not perhaps surprising, on um, equity prices. Uh, the relationship between liquidity supply and share prices, this is a calculation done by uh, Citigroup, actually done by Willem Bauter, who's a professor here currently on leave at Citigroup as their chief economist, um, is that, as you can see, there's a reasonably close relationship. The hard line is M1 uh, in China, and uh, the slightly gray line is the Shanghai A-share uh, price. Now, this relationship has broken um, recently, and I think that's partly because quite a lot of this liquidity has been going into effectively state-controlled investment, you know, uh, run by local governments, and that's where the big increase in credit um, has been. Uh, but you really can see from this uh, that M1 has grown very uh, dramatically over the last year or so. Uh, but, as I say, it has begun to respond to uh, tightening. And this is the most recent figures that I can find up to the first end of the first half of 2010. Uh, and you can see that if you look, this one looks actually at M2 uh, and domestic credit, um, that the authorities have uh, tightened uh, domestic credit quite effectively. And you, you've seen the consequence of that in terms of the lower growth rate uh, in the first half of this year. So the picture that I'm painting over the last year or so has been, boy, uh, a binge in terms of credit expansion uh, and now uh, some more recent tightening. As I say, the question is whether that balance has been set correctly, and whether this tightening has been uh, soon enough or indeed some people might say it was too soon, but we'll, we'll see. But let's just look then, uh, having looked at what's happened over the last year or so, just take a little bit of a step back and look at the shape of the uh, financial system, particularly of the banking system, because as I've explained, that's really the dominant part of the financial system. And you know, this is what it currently looks like. The, the top five uh, state-owned banks, you know, ICBC, Bank of China, Agricultural Bank, Bank of Construction, Bank of Communications, uh, amount to about half the system. But then there are others like China Merchant Bank, etc., and joint stock banks, and the policy banks, China Development Bank, etc., in, in this. And then some of the city commercial banks, credit cooperatives, postal savings, and foreign banks, as you can see, a rather small part of the picture. There is, I should say, also um, a large, more informal credit market, particularly in rural areas. By definition, we can't measure this quite so well, but there are some suggestions that this has been growing really quite rapidly in the last two or three years, partly uh, because of controls on interest rates, which I'll come on to talk about in a bit more detail. Uh, and in fact, um, it's quite interesting that foreign banks still play only a modest role in the Chinese financial system. Uh, until 2007, uh, you know, there was a story that foreign banks were gradually increasing their share of the market. Indeed, they were, albeit slowly, but they've now fallen back. Uh, it's 1.7% of the market. Now, to some extent, of course, that is driven by some of the problems that foreign banks have had. Foreign banks have been <laughs> pulling in their horns um, around the world, have not had capital to invest anywhere. But... I think it has to be said that the Chinese market remains very difficult. 
networks for foreign banks. Um, the controls on branches. Uh, I mean, for example, if you want a branch uh, in the UK, you come along to the FSA and you say, we would like to open a branch in London. And the FSA will then look at your capital, will check that your status of your home regulator, nowadays if you're a Chinese bank, the FSA has a high opinion of the CBRC, so they'll say, fine, that's okay, we'll talk to them and say, is this bank safe, is it operating according to international standards, and then it gets approval to have a branch. And by that, a branch means that you can then uh, do banking in this market, and you can do it wherever you are. A branch is a term meaning a bank here that depends on its parents' capital. And if you then want to open up a uh, branch in the, in the bricks and mortar sense, in every Chinatown in the country, uh, or next to every single uh, Chinese takeaway, you can do so. <laughs> in China, a branch means a branch means a shop, one shop, one door, one window, that's it. You ask for approval for a branch, that's what you get for one. And you want another one, you've got to go all through the process all over again. And essentially, it is still a very restrictive environment for foreign banks. Uh, and has, I believe, um, been damaging, really, in reducing competition in the Chinese banking system. And as we can see in some of the international surveys, uh, the Chinese banks don't score particularly highly on measures of efficiency. They're very profitable, for other reasons we'll come on to, but they're not particularly efficient, and I do believe that part of that uh, is because uh, the authorities have been quite restrictive about allowing foreign uh, competition. I mean, given you know, the otherwise openness of the Chinese economy, particularly the high uh, trade proportion, I mean, that is a very low number um, for, Chinese, for foreign bank participation in the market. Chinese banks have become very profitable um, indeed. Um, and you know, from a point in 2003 when I first got involved in this, when Chinese banks uh, were essentially a break-even proposition, uh, in fact, arguably, uh, this wasn't really a positive um, number uh, in 32, uh, because you, know, you were the accounting for non-performing loans, I don't think was really great in 2003. I think it's much better now. But this is a pretty uh, dramatic um, growth in profit. Now, is this because of size? Well, partly. Um, is it because of efficiency? Well, probably not very much. Uh, is it because interest rates on deposits are very tightly controlled? Yes. Um, and if you pay people uh, interest rates which are below inflation, then it ain't, you know, even some of our bankers could make money in that situation. Um, <laughs> even RBS could probably make some money uh, if uh, they had controlled uh, interest rates and they weren't allowed to pay people more uh, than inflation. And that's essentially what's gone on. So the Chinese banks have become very profitable during this period, uh, indeed. They have, however, also cleaned up their act in terms of non-performing loans. I mean, my first lecture in this series you know, was about 70% of it was about NPLs, because that was the big issue. Uh, the Chinese banks at that time had balance sheets full of non-performing loans. Um, now, some of this reduction is through accounting, in that some of it is that the government took these non-performing loans off the balance sheets and put them into asset management companies, essentially creating bad banks 
um, bad banks which took bad loans and have been working them out. Um, and that's fine. I mean, that's a rational uh, thing for a country to do. But this NPL was the hangover from the lending binge of the late 90s post the Asian financial crisis of the late 90s, when China, in order to respond to that threat to its growth, uh, did a lot of aggressive pumping of money through the banking system. And that actually, at that point, resulted in a very nasty spike in non-performing loans, um, which, as you can see, it was uh, in 2003, it was 18% uh, of assets. Now, that's a lot to have 18% of your loans uh, non-performing. And furthermore, it's a technical point that is often not appreciated. If you look as a banking supervisor at non-performing loans, you look at two things. You look at the number which are not performing in the sense the interest not getting paid, and you also look at what's called LGD, crucial thing, loss given default. Um, in other words, what do you get back if this, if this loan actually does default? And in uh, a typical developed market like this, the loss given default might not be so bad, particularly if there's an asset backing, if there's some decent property backing to it. Obviously, a software company, if it defaults, the LGD is usually high, because if a software company goes bust, there isn't much to sell. Um, you know, they, they probably there's nothing to sell. Uh, if, however, a property company goes bust and has got property, well, you know, there's probably still, still assets to sell. So the loss given default was certainly not 100. What happened in China was that a lot of these were state or local government-owned companies, which turned out to be not good investments, and not everything the Chinese have done in the export market has succeeded. You know, there are quite a lot of Chinese companies that have you know, not had good products and have gone bust. And what happened was the local government seized the land and said, well, the land's ours. And the banks, excuse me, you know, we funded this uh, factory, you know, we thought that we had some assets here. Uh, and essentially, they were then told they didn't. So the loss given default was absolutely massive uh, because there was very little in the way of assets uh, recovered. So these figures were actually even worse than they looked. And so the big question now, of course, is, you know, well, given the latest binge, um, where's this line going? Now, the bank and regulators are worried about this, uh, but they believe that uh, the situation has changed from the last time. They believe that the banks have better uh, credit control. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you were a betting man, you'd have to say there's got to be a reasonable chance that this NPL line is going to turn up again following a 30% increase in bank credit in one year. And so the big question is, you know, how far will it turn up? I guess people wouldn't be surprised if it went up a bit, you know, but if it really rockets back up again, then people are going to be anxious about it. And this is all about really whether the bank's credit control is improve, has improved. Capital reserves for these banks have strengthened as a result, um, essentially largely because of returned earnings. I mean, as you saw, they're hugely profitable. Uh, they have retained earnings, and they have built their capital base. In fact, they were doing this very sensibly, um, well ahead of the tightened capital requirements they now are. Uh, for a while, in 2008-9, it looked as if the Chinese banks were well ahead of the game. But of course, Basel III uh, is raising the stakes. So in fact, they probably aren't 
very significantly overcapitalized by international standards now, given the new standards in place. But they're in much better condition than many other banks, or than German banks or Spanish banks, for example. You know, they have actually increased their capital through largely through retained earnings during this period, and are now reasonably well capitalized. And indeed, uh, this what this shows is you know, the overall capital asset uh, requirements and the extent to which banks meet it. And most of the banks meet the standards now set by the regulators. And if you look at uh, where they are in global league tables, and this is by tier one capital, you know, the Chinese banks are pretty big. Uh, ICBC is the seventh largest by, chi by tier one capital, uh, Bank of China 14th, Bank Construction Bank uh, 15th. Uh, so now you've got uh, some quite large banks in the world league tables and indeed if you look at the top thousand um, now you've got from 1990 where you had eight Chinese banks in the world's top thousand um, now you've got 84 Chinese banks uh, in the world's top thousand so the Chinese banking system is now really quite significant on a global scale now how good however is the financial system in China? Well, these are difficult questions to answer. Uh, interestingly, the World Economic Forum, the Davos people, have recently produced a new uh, financial development index, um, which has uh, seven pillars, uh, seven uh, pillars of wisdom for the literary uh, people among you, and looking at institutional environment, the business environment, uh, financial stability, um, uh, the banking, uh, banking services, uh, non-banking financial services, financial markets, and financial access. Uh, and they score China, India, Hong Kong, and the rest of Asia on these various measures. And there's a large number of detailed measures uh, behind this, which you can look at uh, if you want. Uh, but essentially, um, the problems that they point to, which I think are quite uh, significant, um, is this, uh, I think probably the two on the right are the most uh, significant among them. That there are significant question marks, I think, about whether the Chinese financial system with its heavy reliance on banks is well placed to fund long-term infrastructure developments. And there has been a bit of a crunch recently with, as I've said, these local government financing platforms, which are essentially financing large infrastructure projects around China. And you have to ask yourself, is bank lending the right way to do that? I mean, that would not be normally the way, maybe a bank lending piece of it, but you know, people would normally think in uh, Western countries of bonds for that kind of investment, you know, which would have a, a long-term a long-term bond with a long-term uh, spread of uh, coupon spread, and possibly there'll be income at the end of this project. Maybe it's a road with a toll attached to it, or a railway project, which eventually will generate uh, income. And really, you know, whether bank finance uh, is a good way to develop that kind of infrastructure is, I think, a, a question mark. I do think that China's lack of a well-functioning bond market is quite a handicap in relation to infrastructure projects. And the other area um, which is important, I think, is that China scores poorly on retail access to banks and to financial services, both in terms of the types of thing that retail customers can get access to, but also the terms 
on which they do get access uh, to financial services. And on both of those areas, China scores quite badly. Overall, interestingly, on this measure, uh, China is the 22nd most developed financial market, one ahead of Italy. Um, so uh, noodles are slightly ahead of spaghetti on this uh, measure. Uh, bizarrely, and this is a somewhat frivolous line drawn across here, uh, there is an inverse correlation between financial development and GDP growth, um, which I'm not sure is in any way causal, but it is a quite a striking feature of this, that actually the, the more uh, sophisticated financial markets have actually been growing um, uh, very poorly uh, in, recent, in recent years, the US and the UK, who score highest on this measure of financial uh, sophistication. Uh, but of course, it's not surprising if you've just had a crash that began in the financial system that that is, uh, that that is the way things are. But it's a rather, it's a rather odd feature uh, of this um, index. But China, as you can see, is kind of in the middle of the pack now in terms of financial development. Interestingly, apparently more developed on these, these measures uh, than some developed countries and you know, reasonably sophisticated in lots of ways. But... Uh, if you look at behind this, at the sort of rankings by activity, you can see a very mixed picture. Uh, China's been strong on IPO activity. I mean, recently, of course, it has been possible to raise new capital in, in, in China, um, and it hasn't been very easy in other places. Currency stability, curiously enough, scores high on this measure because the currency has been stable. I mean, it may have been too low, but I mean, but it has been stable. Uh, the banks, uh, you know, are big and capable and capable of providing large-scale financing. Equity market development is not bad. I mean, it's slightly older than this division, which probably should go. But bond market development is weak. Bank efficiency uh, is weak, and I think in part that relates uh, to undeveloped competition. And financial sector liberalisation uh, is weak, and there's very little in the way of securitisation, which of course links to the to the bond market. So China is not very good uh, at providing long-term debt finance. Um, it's better on equities and of course it's uh, strong on bank finance. Now financial sector liberalisation is the bit that I want to focus on uh, as I come uh, to the end and to my main point which loops back to the issue of imbalances. Financial sector liberalisation I think we have to be a bit careful about these days because um, we may have learned some lessons in the crisis about some forms of financial deregulation and liberalisation, which may not turn out to be quite as beneficial as many people thought they were initially. And so I think that the, the sort of general view that would have been part of the kind of Washington consensus in 2006-07 was that the more sophisticated markets were, the more complete in some technical sense financial markets were, the more you could devise new innovative instruments which allowed risk to be traded and play financial claims to be traded in ever more sophisticated ways, the better. We now are not so sure about that uh, because we've seen examples of how undisciplined financial innovation linked to weak risk management has created um, what uh, in technical terms we may call a mess. Um, and so liberalisation is not quite so straightforward, I think. And indeed, particularly in the regulatory area, uh, I think the fact that the Chinese have retained a series of more fine-grained controls over credit 
So things like loan to valuation rates in the mortgage market, deposit rates um, on flats and houses, variable reserve requirements with the central bank. In fact, regulators in the West are now looking somewhat enviously at this more sophisticated range of tools which you can use in counter-cyclical ways, and in fact are reinventing some of these tools over here. Whereas we used to sort of say that of all these, inter these, these detailed interventions in the markets uh, are counterproductive, you should just focus on price, you know, short-term interest rate, that's that, uh, and that will deal with credit. In fact, now people are coming to the view that maybe it's a good idea to have a more sophisticated range of tools. So liberalisation you've got to be careful about. But one particular aspect of liberalisation I think is important, um, and that is uh, the way in which um, people pay for credit. So let me come on to conclude and then within that to make one key point. First of all, I think that China has been pretty effective over the last few years in steering its financial system through a difficult period. As I said at the end of this, you know, we have to ask ourselves some questions about what the consequences of the last year will be. Standards of supervision are now comparable with developed countries. I do believe that. Um, I mean, work with the CBRC and the CSRC. They're very sophisticated people. Um, they are very well up with international standards. They recently had an FSAP, a financial sector assessment program carried out by the IMF, um, which now all countries in the world, while one, have had. There's one country, of course, which has always refused to have an FSAP on the basis that its system was perfect, and that country is the United States, and so it's aware of that. Um, and um, the Chinese uh, ranking was very good. It wasn't completely perfect. Um, they haven't published the whole thing, but I mean, there were areas for improvement and areas where they were not fully compliant, but actually all countries who've had an FSAP have had areas where they've not been fully compliant with the standards, um, but their score was excellent, frankly. And China has, as I've said, retained flexibility to influence credit conditions, which other countries are now trying to recover. But there are some challenges ahead. I think one is the degree of state ownership to retain in the financial system. And you know, if you look at uh, it's the banks, the securities firms, the big insurance companies, you know, the state, uh, level of state ownership remains very high. And this against the background where the declared policy is to have more privatisation in the financial system. I mean, if you ask the Chinese finance ministry and the regulators, they would say, yes, we want to introduce more private capital, more privatisation in the financial system. But it's going pretty slowly. And, and the state still owns a very large amount um, of these uh, banks. So that, I think, is one big challenge. And to work towards a more mixed economy model of the financial system. Secondly, reducing dependence on the banking system. I do think um, that whilst there's no way of saying precisely what the right balance between banks and others are, I think if you think about it in terms of the appropriate financial instruments for different types of investment, you know, I can't help thinking, just to give the simple example I gave, that large-scale, long-term infrastructure projects where the, return, the expenditure is heavily up front and the returns come later, you know, I, I just have to believe that long-term bond finance is a better way of doing that um, than simply through a bank's uh, balance sheet, through the banking book. 
and that is lacking. Um, so how do you do that? This is tricky uh, because more dynamic equity and particularly bond markets will require stronger corporate uh, governance because if you're lending people long term you're much more interested in that. Um, there needs to be much more robust and impartial enforcement of contracts. If you ask foreign firms in China, they still are anxious about the legal system and about the uh, credibility and whether it's actually fair to, to foreign investors. You will need derivatives markets and you will need diverse credit bases. It's kind of pointless to devise a bond market if every issuer is ultimately government backed because there's not very much excitement in that in terms of price. You know, everybody's triple A, so what's the interest in the bond market? So you know, there, is, um, you know, there, there is a need, if you like, to make a leap um, into developing a more diverse set of issues in the bond market, which at the moment uh, the Chinese have not been prepared to do. And the third point, I think, is overcoming what I call what is often called financial repression. And this is, I think, an important point which really I want to end with. What do we mean by financial repression? Well, essentially, uh, what it means is that if you uh, deposit money in the bank, you actually get back uh, less than inflation. And this slightly complicated, it's the only chart that needs, uh, this is a little bit complicated. The, the red uh, rates, uh, the red lines are the nominal deposit rate in Chinese banks, and the dotted red line is the real uh, deposit rate. And as I'm sure you know, the interest rates are very tightly controlled by the People's Bank. And for quite long periods, and notably, uh, particularly in, in 2004 and in 2008, uh, the real uh, deposit rates were strongly negative. So people were just you know, getting, well, they're getting negative real interest rate uh, on their deposits, and the real borrowing rate, because the blue line is the lending rate, um, and the dotted blue line is the real lending rate, you are getting, you are actually borrowing money at a negative uh, interest rate. Now, this has big consequences, because the numbers are huge here, um, and this has a big consequence in terms of the distribution of wealth. And uh, an interesting calculation was done in 2008 um, by Nicholas Lardy at the Peterson Institute, um, which looked at the implicit tax, as he called it. Um, and essentially, uh, the households were losing 4% of GDP as a result of the fact that if you took their net position, households were net depositors. And they were losing 4% of GDP uh, because they were getting on their deposits lower negative real interest rates. Who was winning on that? The corporate sector was winning. Uh, if you took the net position of the corporate sector, um, they were net borrowers, and therefore they were benefiting from negative interest rates on their borrowers. And so they were gaining to the extent of nearly 1% of GDP. Um, and the banks were gaining by 1% of GDP. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why the banks have been so profitable, because they were just getting a windfall benefit of 1% of GDP because of the control on interest rates and the negative, the negative spread, if you like. And the government was getting the rest. Uh, why was the government getting the rest? 
uh, because essentially what the government was doing was buying um, huge amounts of, with a, with a large trade surplus, the government was buying treasury bills, US treasury bills, and sterilizing that by requiring the banks to deposit more money uh, with the People's Bank. So they were sterilizing the impact of selling renminbi to buy treasuries, and that of course has a big uh, money supply and potentially inflationary impact. So you sterilize that by requiring the banks to hold more renminbi deposits with the central bank. And so it was the government effectively that, that was gaining from financial repression. The government gained 2% of GDP from that. And it looks as if, although these calculations have not been redone in quite this form, but that we're going back in this direction. This is in fact uh, taken from a speech by one of the directors of the European Central Bank, uh, who were pointing out uh, with some concern that these dotted lines were now going back to where they were in 2008, because inflation was going up in China and uh, interest rates were not being allowed to rise. And this, I believe, is one important feature of the bias towards investment. Because if you have a position where you can borrow at negative interest rates, the likelihood is that you boost investment. And you boost investment, and the combination of that boost and holding down the exchange rate through these massive purchases is likely to bias your economy towards investment and it reduces the price of traded goods and produces a disadvantage for the service sector. And one interesting consequence of that is that you do not generate as much employment for each percentage point of GDP growth as you otherwise would, because the trading sector, the manufacturing sector, is less employment rich than the service sector. So you bias your economy against the service sector by this method, bias it towards investment and uh, trading goods, and your consequence is that you reduce employment growth. So you may argue that some of what Wen Jiabao said at the beginning about the worries on employment growth are actually traceable back to this financial repression, uh, and that somehow if the Chinese could deal with this point, that would affect the bias in the economy towards traded goods and towards investment and through that to exports and rebias the economy towards services and consumption, which is what the authorities say they want to do. So, finally, one further point which I mentioned briefly uh, that I think that banks will need even stronger credit control and risk management than they've had. Uh, in the past, uh, particularly in an environment in which they are still being used as kind of economic regulators. Because as we saw, what happened when the Chinese stimulated their economy was they stimulated uh, bank lending. Uh, uh, and that is going to, if it's not going to result in a growth in non-performing loans, the banks are going to have to be pretty disciplined about their credit uh, decisions. So. That's the end of the story. I've tried to take you from today's big controversy at a political level of why that is happening, 
um, and to give one of the explanations, which is not the only part of the explanation, as to why these imbalances persist through an analysis of the shape of the financial sector, uh, which I do think needs some attention. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Howard. That was um, wonderfully clear, and uh, what was said was very important. Now, um, the tradition is that um, we do not dwell on agreement, and the students at the LSE give the director a hard time. <laughs> so what we would like to do was be to have um, perhaps 15 uh, minutes or so of, of questions. Um, I'm going to abuse the chair um, by starting off, but as I ask my question that gets answered, could you please um, think of your questions and I'll come quickly to you. The question I wanted to ask, uh, Howard, was about the determinants of the savings rate and the growth rate, or the savings and investment rate and the growth rate. Um, one of the features of China is a high share of profits and, as you pointed to, fairly weak corporate governance. So that means that there's a lot of money in terms of profits flowing into firms and uh, the people who run the firms can do more or less what they want to do and that means that if they want to just have a bigger firm they can grow it and they're free to invest and they don't have pressure necessarily from uh, their shareholders to distribute profits or indeed make best use of the money that they invest. So it's a combination of a structure that gives you a high share of profits and quite limited uh, shareholder control of those profits. And that is a major element, I think, in the high savings rate. So it's not simply the worried Chinese household with very few children. I think it's partly that, but also a story of um, those two structural effects of a high share of profit and weak control over those um, profits. And if you ask how China can keep up its growth rate whilst reducing its savings rate, then the other feature you spoke to, which is the high capital intensity, um, partly as a result of interest rates, has to change. Uh, you all know if you've studied economics and uh, looked at uh, growth theory that the growth rate is the uh, investment rate divided by capital intensity, divided by how much you, capital you need to produce an extra unit of output. And if China's to keep that growth rate up, it needs to, uh, at the same time, do something about the balance of payments. It needs to reduce the savings investment rate and to uh, reduce the capital output ratio or it increase the efficiency of capital in that sense. So I wonder if you could reflect on the relationship with the financial system and those two features of what causes high savings rate and how China can keep up its growth rate whilst reducing it. Well, I uh, agree with you about the, the two factors you describe, but I think that they um, can be to some degree mitigated by two points that I did make near the end. One is, of course, that um, if you do have negative real interest rates on borrowing, uh, that is, uh, you know, that takes away one element of discipline. I mean, it's relatively easy to produce investment projects that meet a negative <laughs> real rate of return. You see what I mean? 
Uh, so I think that uh, requiring companies to pay a more realistic price for credit would be a good uh, enhancement of discipline um, and would be likely to improve the quality of investment. And the second thing is that uh, the greater introduction of um, private capital and particularly perhaps overseas capital into firms is also likely to have some impact on strengthening the uh, corporate governance. At the moment, of course, because the uh, external shareholding and the free float is really quite small as a proportion um, of the shareholding of many of these companies, you know, the impact of those external shareholders is muted um, on the boards and on the management of those, uh, of those companies. So I do think that the, a real interest rate um, and stronger move towards um, privatisation and introduction of external capital will both have some effect on what you point to, which is a, you know, a corporate sector that, that's, that really is lacking these kind of disciplines on the quality of its investment. Thank you very much, Howard. Now, I'm going to take uh, three questions at uh, a time. Lady, uh, halfway up in next to the aisle, please. Could you say who you are? Oh, my name is Wan Ru. I'm from Shanghai. So I want to ask a question about the real estate market. Uh, I want to know how do you evaluate the recent dramatic, dramatic increase in price in the China's real estate market. Thank you. Thank you. So we'll take three. I think there's a gentleman just here. Yeah. Uh, actually, I have two questions. It better be short. Keep it short, yeah. Uh, the first one is, um, uh, as you have this close relationship with the banking regulation people, and what's their uh, response and attitude to uh, this uh, overcoming financial rep uh, repression and uh, uh, too much state uh, ownership in the banking system? Uh, and also, uh, if they want to introduce more uh, um private capital into the capital, uh, system, how this privatization going to carry out? And my second question is uh, the, about the renminbi value uh, and renminbi dollar uh, exchange rate. Um, at this point, um, do, you, uh, um, do you agree with that uh, uh, the current level of uh, this exchange rate or you think renminbi should uh, appreciate more uh, quickly uh, than what's happening now. Thanks. Thank you. And uh, this gentleman just here, please. Um, I've always thought that there's a, uh, there's this, the currency world is unsustainable. Um, if you look at the recent news uh, articles and if you hear what has been said in Brussels to the, in the EU European Asian Summit, China clearly made sure to the US that it doesn't really care about what they say or what they think about the currency, and uh, which concerns the U.S. and uh, because their currency is very high in, in comparison to China, it's going to affect their exports, but they can do nothing about that. And the other countries, central banks are fighting to keep their currencies down. So who wins, who loses? I think in the end, do you think it's unsustainable to have a fight in currencies? Rather, would it be more sustainable to have a global currency, which might not be seen well for national integrity, but isn't that the only solution? 
Thank you. I, I should say that Howard's going to take those questions and then I'll move over to the right-hand side of the room for the next three. Uh, yes. Um, well, three questions, although the middle one was four questions, I think. Um, <laughs> uh, I should ask you, really, do you own a flat in Shanghai? Do you own a flat in Shanghai? You don't. Um, it's always important to know where people are coming from, you know, do they? Um, the... Um, I mean, I think that, that it's quite understandable why there should be a real increase in the price of property in places like um, Shanghai. I mean, the agglomeration effect of the big Chinese coastal cities and the sort of significantly higher productivity of labor in those cities is, is you know, it's not at all surprising um, that uh, property prices uh, rise there. Uh, and, of course, you know, they're not making Shanghai anymore. I mean, there's a limit to Shanghai, how, how far it can, uh, can expand. And there have been some uh, controls on development in Shanghai, uh, you know, which have also contributed to it. So, you know, that the property prices should rise in Shanghai in real terms doesn't seem surprising. But, and nonetheless, I think the record shows that this is a much more volatile property market than you would ideally want. You know, that you've seen far more volatility, which appears to be driven more by availability of liquidity and by what's going on in the financial system than by these real factors. So I would expect a sort of uh, a trend, a secular trend towards rising real property prices in Shanghai, but boy has there been a lot of volatility around it, and it looks to me that that volatility has been on the upside just um, recently. Uh, and if you do buy a flat and you lose money as a result, please don't come back and ask for me to uh, pay you. Um, what does the CBRC think about these things? Well, um, uh, the CBRC, uh, you know, uh, is, uh, is careful and cautious and focuses on its responsibilities uh, and doesn't do the People's Bank's job, which is interest rates. Um, but I think that they are very conscious of uh, the distortionary impact of uh, financial repression. And I think also, if you ask uh, Liu Ming-Kang for his view on private ownership, he would say that the introduction of... Uh, equity partnership uh, from overseas firms into some of the Chinese banks, you know, with, uh, HSBC and Bank of America, for example, have gone in, has been positive uh, because it has improved the management of those institutions, has improved, uh, given them access to technology in the form of uh, not just of, of, of systems, of straightforward banking systems, but also risk management expertise, etc. And they have certainly seen the benefit of that, and I think they would say that. Now, they would accept that, you know, how far you go and quite how that's done is, a, you know, a decision which has a political dimension to it. But I think they would be positive about the introduction, particularly of the sort of strategic partnerships where the investor doesn't just bring money, but also, you know, brings... Uh, access to international expertise. And I think that's been a good experience for the Chinese so far. Um, uh, and um, the two, well, your, your last question um, links to the last one as well about the, uh, the currency level. Um, global currency, well, you know, the thing about a global currency, a currency is not really a currency unless somebody backs it. You know, and so a global currency is not just a 
saying, oh, let's all use the same shells to exchange with each other value. You know, you have to think about there is then a global central bank and a global exchequer and a global fiscal policy. It's not going to happen. Um, not in my lifetime, and I'm feeling quite healthy just at the moment. So, uh, the, there could be, and uh, Zhao Xiaochuan of the People's Bank and others have argued that um, you know, there would be value in expanding the availability of SDRs. And, you know, and I think that's a separate sort of argument as to whether it would be a good idea for the, uh, the IMF to be able to issue a larger proportion of SDRs, and that could be helpful from an investment point of view. So I think there could be an expansion of these sort of quasi-global currencies, if you like, but the notion of a global currency, I think, is not something that's worth really spending a lot of time on. Um, I do think that uh, the Chinese uh, exchange, the renminbi, ought to rise. But I think that you should discuss this and debate it and analyse it from the perspective of the shape of the Chinese economy and the best way to manage the Chinese economy in the medium term. And it strikes me that it's not at all useful from any point of view to approach the renminbi rate from the perspective of your own economy. I mean, you know, for the Americans to say, we've got a problem, so please could you solve it by increasing your exchange rate, you know, by, it just doesn't seem to be plausible. But I think that the more thoughtful commentators looking at the shape of the Chinese economy and how it can be adjusted over time uh, to make it more sustainable, and let's not forget the famous Wen Jiabao quote, you know, that Chinese economy is unsustainable, etc., in its present form. And I think that will involve um, a rise in the renminbi over time. I think it also involves a few other things, as I've attempted to, to describe. So I don't think it's a good idea to begin with the exchange rate versus the dollar point, um, because I do think if you focus on that, you have to say, well, hang on, there's some problems on the American side as well. And, you know, it takes two to create this kind of imbalance, and they've managed to create it by having 70% consumption. And what are they doing about that? You know, so I, I do think if you focus on that bilateral relationship, uh, you know, you, you end up in just uh, trading blows and not getting it very far. But if you focus it from, if you were managing the Chinese economy, what would you like to try to do to rebalance it somewhat, um, then I think a, a more flexible exchange rate is likely to be part of a package of measures you would adopt. Thank you, Howard. I'd like to take um, three questions out, more or less from this side of the room. You know, we can don't have to be too well-defined. If you could ask the questions fairly quickly, because we'd like to get the answers in and still finish uh, by 8 o'clock. Uh, lady just here, please. Thank you very much. Um, this is Yuku from the Imperial College. <coughs> um, my question is, um, immersing the financial market problem into the other problem that um, the international community is facing. You mentioned about uh, the imbalance between investment and consumption. My question is if consumption increase in China to the level it should be, it means a huge consumption of the world resource. Now China has already had the problem of creating em emissions and all sorts of um, resource using problem. Um, as an economist, when you're making decisions, advice to government, do you take that side of the story into consideration? And if so, how do you take that into consideration, please? Thank you. A gentleman here in the Czech shirt. 
thanks. Uh, Liu Haiyuan from... You haven't got a Czech shirt, but could you pass it down to this fellow just at the front, please? <laughs> no, I'll come back to you, but I, I did... Hello, um, Ian Sheridan. Um, I have been a lawyer in the city for over 10 years, so I'm aware of Howard Davies' uh, good work at FSA. Um, I wanted to ask about regulatory efficiency. In your years of going over to China, has one of the issues that's cropped up been working with a single regulator? Because certainly, uh, anecdotally, as one lawyer, I've been very aware that I had... I'd come into the city where there were nine self-regulatory organisations and that was obviously consolidated down to one. Has, has that been one of the aspects that um, has been as attractive as the advice that you've given them? And could we pass it back to the gentleman who doesn't have a check shirt? <laughs> Thanks again. Liu Huayuan from Financial Journalism at City University London. And as the Premier Wen Jiabo said, uh, the uh, overvalued uh, Chinese currency is a disaster to the world, and uh, I wonder. Uh, and uh, uh, this is not. Uh, and I wonder what's your uh, how you understand this this disaster. And uh, <laughs> I've got another question as well. I hope you can bear with me. Um, it had to be very quick. Yeah. yeah okay. Uh, China's export uh, takes 40% of its GDP, and uh, more than one billion people rely on the export. As well as uh, we all know that China has a very delicate political uh, environment. Uh, as an economist, uh, can you recommend uh, if China now raises its uh, currency? As an economist, can you uh, recommend a measure for China to continue its high speed? economic growth, as well as maintaining the employment. Thank you. Um, well, the, the reference to um, uh, sort of economic disaster for the world, which I quoted from uh, Wen Jiabao, uh, you know, I think that um, his rhetoric was a little bit high-flown on the one side, just as Chuck Schumer and Paul Krugman was rather high-flown on the other side, and in a sense that was an example, I think, of what I was saying about, in answer to the previous question, that this isn't a terribly constructive way of conducting that uh, debate. Um, but I guess what he is trying to uh, convey was that, um, you know, if you had a very sharp change in the Chinese exchange rate, which, uh, you know, created a major dislocation in the Chinese economy and put a lot of uh, people in manufacturing firms out of work, uh, you know, that that uh, could create social problems. I mean, he explicitly said social problems as well as uh, economic problems, and if it created social problems and the Chinese economy went into a kind of spasm and, uh, um, you know, there was social unrest and the Chinese economic growth stalled, you know, that would have a big effect on the rest of the world. I mean, I can understand that mechanism. Um, I guess, however, what I would come back to would be to say that I think that there's a danger in these arguments of there being an excluded middle, you know, that there is a way of uh, adjusting the composition of the Chinese economy which could actually be more employment rich than the one that they've got at the moment and that actually... Um, you know, this export-driven economy, because they've got quite high productivity exporting firms, is not in fact delivering that many jobs. And as, as I tried to show on that rather stark chart, you know, that the 
that the employment richness of China's current growth model is low. And if your concern is a social one of trying to mop up surplus labor coming off the countryside, it's not obvious that this model is doing it in a very effective way. Um, let me then deal with the, uh, the single regulator point, and then uh, I warn you, uh, uh, Nick, that I'm going to only, only give a very partial answer to the first question, and you're going to pick it up, because you're much more expert on the environmental aspects of growth than I am. Um, but on the, on the single regulator thing, the story of this is quite interesting. Uh, when the um, Chinese decided in the 90s, in the early 90s, that they would um, reconstruct their financial authorities. And if you remember, I mean, it's not that long ago, right in about 1990 or early 1990s, the People's Bank was everything. You know, the People's Bank was the central bank was the regulator insofar as you needed one and the main banks were actually just part of they were just operating divisions of the people's bank and they um, decided to send two teams abroad to look at how they should reform the monetary policy function and the regulatory function and they sent a team to the US to look particularly at monetary policy at that time this was pre-Bank of England independence so our model didn't look great from a monetary policy point of view at that point and they uh, took back quite an interesting model um, from the states, and they reorganized the People's Bank um, in a, to make sure that the People's Bank uh, structure was not mapping onto political jurisdictions in, in China in the same way as the Fed model doesn't. You, know, you don't have Fed um, districts coterminous with states and stuff in order to try to create, a, a, to, to try to avoid too much kind of political clash locally. And they did that. And then they sent a team here, actually, as it happens, under Liu Ming Kang, who was cha now chairman of the CBRC, who at that time was a deputy governor. And they came and reviewed our regulatory system, and this is about 1998. Uh, and interestingly, they spent quite a bit of time here, and they wrote a paper about it, which, fascinatingly, they actually gave it to us uh, and said, you might be interested in this. Um, this is our report on your regulatory system, which was, you know, it was really interesting. And they got it translated back into English for us. And, um, you know, it made some quite acute points about some... But they basically said that we quite like this idea of regulatory consolidation. And we quite like it outside the central bank, because we do think that monetary policy and regulatory policy, the accountability structures are rather different. But they concluded that um, in the short run, um, at least for two reasons, they wouldn't create one regulator, they would create three. And the two reasons were, one, that actually, in a, as a, in a system where the regulators are actually more, in, more powerful, because you know, you, there's more control over the financial system, there just is. You know, you're making more decisions of a detailed kind by the regulators in China than you are here. It's changed a little bit in the last year or two, but still you are. Uh, that they felt that con concentration of power in one agency of the whole damn thing would be exaggerated, would just be impossible. Which is, I thought, a good point. And the second point, which is quite a good point, was that at the time, they actually still had rather rigid divisions between banking securities and insurance. And so the case for a single regulator was somewhat less than it is here, where you, you know, insure banks own insurance companies and vice versa, etc. So they chose to set up three commissions, but with a kind of coordinating body on top of it. 
And every couple of years, they have a look at it and see if they think that's right or they want to change and have, you know, go to, uh, to a, a more unified structure. But for the moment, um, they have decided to stay with the three commissions and they've built sort of separate identities and I think probably they've evolved at slightly different pace. Uh, uh, so I think, that's to my, I think that's likely to be where they stay for the uh, foreseeable future. Um, as for uh, consumption and um, uh, resource use, I mean, undoubtedly this is a big issue, but um, I think the way I would look at it, but I will hand over to Nick uh, here, um, is that you know, there's a, it's a bit of it's about the sort of emission intensity of growth, and it's not obvious to me that that would be higher if your growth was somewhat more balanced towards consumption. Actually, a lot of their manufacturing is very high uh, emissions and not particularly efficient in terms of its energy usage. Um, and I don't think that, that the switch that we're talking about of a sort of investment and consumption balance necessarily implies what you were suggesting. But, but Nick can answer yeah. that better. Um, I, I think that's, that's right, uh, Howard. And I also think just at the starting point, it's um, pretty tough on China to complain about the way in which China is using resources. Um, as Howard pointed out, China's consumption uh, may be around 5-6% of world consumption and China's population is probably 17-18% of world population. So you can't knock China just because it's growing um, when that's what everybody else would like to do. The challenge is to, for everybody, not just China, to break the link between pressure on resources and consumption and output, particularly of course emissions. But we can all use energy much more efficiently and we have to. We can all use water much more efficiency, much more efficiently than we have to. We all have to use land much more efficiently than we do and we have to do that and we actually, in each of these cases, understand a lot of the story of uh, how, you, how you do that. So I think we should ask that question of the world as a whole. So whatever we do, we should do it much more efficiently in terms of the use of resources. Secondly, we can switch to ways of producing things which are much less pressured on resources. I mean, solar power will have much less pressure on resources than other forms of energy. I think the, the number is that the amount of solar energy that comes into the earth every hour is roughly equal to the amount the entire world uses in a year. Now, we can't get it all, but we don't have to get very much of it. So, so first, efficiency. Second, a switch in the way we do things. And third, a switch in the kinds of things that we do. And on the whole, the service sector is uh, less, not everywhere, but on the whole, it's less intensive than other forms of activity. So to the extent that activity switches towards the service sector, which it does with rising living standards, that's another route, as it were, to reduce the pressure. And I think all these three routes are going to matter. I could talk at length about emissions, but I will spare you on uh, this occasion. My job now is to thank Howard very much for his uh, talk.
it was clear and thoughtful and we go away understanding much more than we did when we came in. That's what every intellectual should ask about her or his day. Do I understand more at the end of the day than I did at the beginning? And I think, Howard, we do. And thank you very much indeed.